Mary Jo, have you ever heard of Gartner's hype cycle of technology? I, uh, I don't want to talk about it. So it starts with a rapid rise of expectations that then quickly falls. Yeah, I, okay, I know. I'm in the trough of despair right now. I thought you hadn't heard of the cycle. I have. I just wanted to punk you. I mean, misery does love company. It's this graph where it shows you that first comes the peak of inflated expectations. So for you, maybe virtual reality, for example, it's something that everybody's excited about. And then comes the trough of despair, where I am. And after that, the slope of enlightenment, the plateau of productivity. It's basically the sequence by which a piece of technology actually becomes pretty popular, then loses steam, and then becomes useful. And where would you say our guest today falls on that graph? Well, our guest, who was Alan November, who I got to interview this week, is a big-name educational consultant who was once a champion of technology in the classroom. But based on our conversation, he seems to be with me in the trough of despair. I can tell that his message was that technology isn't exactly having the impact we hope for in schools. Hmm. I wonder why. Well, it seems like we might be entering that space as a whole industry. I mean, for the last couple of years, expectations have been really, really high for EdTech. People said it would solve every problem in the classroom, um, and venture capitalists agreed. But now we're facing a more sober reality as we see what the technology can, and more importantly, cannot do. Hmm. Well, let's see if that's where we really are. But first, the news. I'm Blake Montgomery. And I'm Mary Jamata. Welcome back to the EdSurge Podcast. Let's get started. The annual ISTE conference is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, EdTech conference in the country, attracting almost 20,000 attendees this year. EdSurge saw everything and we captured it all on our website from confusion around open education resources to oxymoronic jabs at companies by keynote speakers. Here are a few examples. Which vendors are handling privacy policies well and which are not? To help schools, Common Sense Media has published a new set of product reviews featuring the good, the bad, and the negligent when it comes to privacy. Physicist Dr. Michio Kaku, the opening keynote at ISTE, jokingly referred to Microsoft Works as an oxymoron. Now, all kidding aside, Kaku described to educators the technological threads that he and others believe will weave themselves into the fabric of classrooms to come, namely machine learning, tech-rich contact lenses, and robo-doctors, among other things. Online professional learning networks were everywhere at ISTE 2016, where people could be spotted awkwardly looking at each other, seemingly thinking, is that my Twitter friend? They look so different from the profile picture. And our community manager, Molly Levitt, was wondering, what happens when you bring the 2D online world into 3D? Ed Surge's community of educators found out when they convened in real life for the first time and opened their doors to the public. Now moving away from ISTE, but on to some announcements that we heard this week. If you're itching to bring virtual reality to your students, or you're tired of being tied to your classroom projector, or you're exhausted from writing and grading quizzes, well, all of Google's new announcements this week may be just what the doctor ordered. A new casting app, expeditions for all, a coding toy, and a new Google Forms feature all came out of the tech giant this week. In February, EdWeek reported that Amazon Education was beta testing a new platform to help teachers navigate the jungles of open educational resources, or OER. 
That platform, Amazon Inspire, officially launched this week. At the ISTE conference, EdSurge got all the details on how it works, whether it's really free, and what open means to Amazon. It wasn't a flawless entrance, though. Some of the materials on the marketplace ran afoul of teacher copyright, and Amazon was forced to take them down. Has Rocketship been rocked? NPR blogger Anya Kamenetz and Rocketship CEO Preston Smith squared off this week in articles about the charter school and its disciplinary practices. Ed Surge's Christina Quattrochi weighs in with three questions central to the debate that not only apply to NPR and Rocketship, but also confront every educator and school model designer out there. Democrats now have a tech plan. Hillary Clinton has published a technology agenda that focuses on ed tech taking aim at student loan debt and STEM especially. She unveiled plans to allow young entrepreneurs to defer student loans for a time, especially if they start businesses in, quote, distressed communities. Clinton also released plans for increased spending on STEM teacher training, support for new STEM and CS curricula, and federal aid for coding academies. Speaking of women in technology, Esther Wojewski has done a lot in her life. She's taught high school, she's championed student projects, she even wrote a book on blended learning, and she also advises startups, you know, in her spare time. But now, there's another ingredient to add to her magic potion. She's become the chief learning officer for a company called Planet 3 that has some very colorful ambitions. Bread tech is in danger. Britons have voted the Brexit into law. The prime minister has resigned. Financial markets are in turmoil. What does it all mean for the edtech business in Britain? We asked the chief learning officer of Test Global, the founder of Game Design Academy Rising Games, and the director of the British Educational Suppliers Association for their takes. They're worried about funding availability, student visas, and all the uncertainty ahead. You can read more at edsearch.com. Aspiring web and mobile developers are flocking to a growing number of coding boot camps to hone their craft in great numbers, according to data from coding boot camp review site Course Report. Its latest market sizing report shows that these accelerated learning programs expect to graduate almost 18,000 students in 2016, up from about 10,000 last year. Get more on the booming industry on edsearch.com. And now, it's time for the Soul Kaching of the Week. Game Effective has raised $7 million from Jerusalem Venture Partners, which led the round, CE Ventures, Verint, 2B Angels, Shaked Ventures, Litman, and others. Claiming several Fortune 500 clients, Game Effective, based in Charlotte, North Carolina, works with companies to gamify employees' sales and e-learning tasks and provides real-time feedback and performance analytics to employees and managers. The company plans to use the funding to bolster its sales, marketing, and R&D teams. Hello, EdSurge listeners. This is Mary Jo Mata, and I'm currently coming to you from the ISTE conference. Now, I had the great fortune to chat with Alan November, and way back when, he began his education career as a science and math teacher in Boston, and he then went on as a teacher and administrator in the Boston public school system. You know, he has a lot of experience with teaching, and so he went on to co-found the Institute for Education, Leadership, and Technology at Stanford University. He also presents around the world on theories of learning and teaching. And so he's seen a lot of technologies come and go. 
He does sometimes acknowledge their utility, but in this brief moment when I got a chance to chat with him, I heard more cautious words than I was expecting, to be honest with you. I originally started the conversation with Mike Dorsey, who's the director of secondary curriculum at the Houston Independent School District, but then Alan came in with some cautious words for the industry. And really, any entrepreneur or educator should listen to what he has to say. Now, just so you know, the first voice you hear is actually going to be Mike Dorsey from HISD talking about, you know, testing in the district, how that all works. Alan comes in with some interesting thoughts later in the interview. Here we go. Really important question. And, you know, I come to this as a traditional educator who's sort of being pushed and shoved into this, this new world of ed tech. And so all of my professional education has been with sort of traditional methods of education. And when I was in the classroom for 20 years, I was evaluated very traditionally. And measures of success were often just whether my kids had any disciplinary referrals. And as long as they graduated at some point, then I was doing all right. So I think one of the areas that we're looking at is really trying to make sure that our expectations of teachers are aligned with what we say our priorities are in terms of effective instruction. And that includes the use of digital tools and digital resources. And yet the real challenge is, how are we going to measure that success? I mean, we obviously look at certain measures of student achievement. Unfortunately, in public schools, we're too often looking at some fairly narrow measures of student success, which may not really capture just how well we're doing um, with students in a broader sense uh, by using uh, um, tools and resources that are available to us now. But it is key, I think, that since we only have so much time and so many resources, that we look at the whole package so that if we're asking teachers to employ resources and strategies, then we need to evaluate them based on that. We need to support them with professional development that is aligned with that. And we need to make sure that they have the tools and resources that really do what we, we say that they should be able to do. When you say um, too narrow of measures of success, you know, you work with HISD, you probably have some thoughts about this. What are some of the narrow measures of success that you've seen, whether well, your district or other districts? Yeah, I mean, it, basically, the measures that the state uses to determine whether school districts are successful and schools are successful, students are successful, and teachers are successful are the high stakes tests that come at the end of uh, a certain period of study. And so we have end of course tests in Texas that measure how well you do on five tests in high school, I mean five subjects in high school. We have other tests that students take periodically throughout their elementary middle school um, work. and. In one sense, that's going to determine whether schools get an A, B, C, D, or F grade and whether um, they get additional supervision from the state. And so one test on one day is going to determine whether kids have been successful or not. And I'm not sure that that's, that's enough of a measure. And in many ways, what we're looking at with really just helping kids prepare for what they're going to encounter in their own lives uh, you know, this test, it's a multiple choice test. It, it may have some writing passages or short answer responses, but it's, it's a fairly narrow measure at a one point in time of what kids are capable of doing. And to basically determine whether we're successful or not on that one measure, I think is unrealistic. Now that's my unofficial view, it's not the, the view of the Houston Independent School District <laughs> or the state of Texas. Yes, of course, of course. Which gave us No Child Left Behind. Yes. 
Thank you, Houston. <laughs> Where I actually used to teach, ironically enough, but not with the HA. Not your fault. No. Not your fault. So what about you now? That argument would hold whether or not we're talking about technology. Mm -hmm. Figuring out somebody on one day is was very bad education policy anyway. So can't disagree. I am fascinated by the OECD report. Do you, have you seen the OECD report? The report? No. In September of last year, the OECD produced a report assessing the impact of education technology across all, all OECD members. The countries who had invested the most in education technology, led by Australia per capita, had declined the most according to PISA exam data when it was disaggregated. So separate from NCLB, we have another problem. Um, I'm just going to quote Larry Cuban. Technology has been way oversold um, and it's underdelivered, regardless of the test. I don't care what the test is. Um, I think the overall impact of technology effect has been negative. I'll, I'll just say that. So Google's distracting, kids are looking for easy ways out, there's lots of distractions, they're playing video games, they're on social media. Um, civil disobedience is a mess uh, with social media. The ethics are a mess. It's a mess. And I think the industry has to come to grips with this, that they've created a mess. Now, Alan had to run a few minutes after this, and our recorder couldn't capture the last thing that he said in passing. But we wanted to tell you just so you can appreciate it. His quote, if you walk into a classroom and you've gone one-to-one -one and every kid is taking notes on a laptop, I would call that a $1,000 pencil. Alan, thanks very much. That's all for today. Thanks to Alan November for speaking with us. May you all avoid both the trough of despair and the peak of inflated expectations. And of course, thank you for listening to the rest of the podcast. And by the way, if you haven't filled out our listener survey yet, we're still hoping to hear from you. Head to bit.ly slash edsurgeonair. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash edsurgeonair, just like the name of the show. And with that, I'm Blake Montgomery. And I'm Mary Jomata. This is the Ed Surge Podcast.